If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. So glad you're here. Um, and uh, so glad high school is back. Is that right? Back? You look like you, look like you were fried, Balan. You look like you could sleep for about four days right now. Is that true? And yet here you are. Hey, I'll, I'll give you the next 35 minutes to snooze. How about that? <laughs> right? You might be doing that anyway, right? All right. Luke chapter 6. Now, we've been tracking along uh, very slowly through this book. And, and at this point, what's beginning to happen is that there is a group of, of people that are coalescing around Jesus that are his followers. And the religious opposition to the ministry of Jesus is also coalescing as well, because there's a sense in which Jesus is now operating beyond the parameters of generally accepted Jewish religiousness, and he's doing things that, quite honestly, should be done in the temple, and he's claiming things for himself that, quite honestly, uh, his contemporaries would have thought that you're you're stretching here a little bit for this one. So, so Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter six, verse twelve, says this: One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. So the the picture is a large group, and then he selects 12 out of that group, who he designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who we know uh, as Levi from this account, or tax collector, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, this is one of those parts of the Bible where you just kind of skip over to get to the good stuff. But there's actually some good stuff sitting right here. Because one of the things that's very, very interesting is that Jesus, he, Jesus is pulling together a, a, a crew of people. He's going to designate them apostles. Now, there, there are some words here I wanted to find. Disciple just means mimicker or student or apprentice. So you would disciple, be a disciple of somebody if you were intending on acting and becoming like that person was. So you would, if you were a rabbi or a teacher, you would have disciples, and there were many of those. But Jesus is going to call out 12 specifically, and he's going to call them apostles. Now, in the New Testament, there are apostles spelled with a big A, capital A, and apostles spelled with a little a. What he's meaning here are the capital A apostles. These are the founding fathers. This is like the, the, the foundation of the church. Luke is including this specifically to set up what's going to be happen, what's going to be happening in Acts, where there is a foundation that has been laid through these designated, chosen apostles means sent ones or called ones or commissioned ones, heralds, couriers. These are people with a specific task who embody the message and the methods of whoever it is they're representing. And so there are other people that are called apostles with a small a in the New Testament. These are the 12. They will be known as the 12 or known as the 12 apostles. Now, what's so interesting about the list that we're given is, first of all, it includes people that would never normally associate with each other. And let me give you one example of this. You have Matthew, who is a tax collector. Now, we've talked, if you've been around here for any length of time, tax collectors weren't incredibly popular people. The way tax collecting worked is you had, you had temple taxes and you had tithes and offerings and all of those things to the religious establishment. 
But then you also had taxes to Rome and Rome's client kings and puppets and governors. And, and, and so you had two different types of tax collectors. One kind of tax collector, they collected the tribute, they collected uh, the, the like property taxes and population taxes. And then you had another kind of tax collector. These tax collectors sat at bridges or along roads or near uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they would be taking a part of any, any commerce that you were traveling with. And it was the second kind of tax collector that Matthew was. And, and, and the, the reason tax collectors weren't very liked is, A, they were co- collaborating with Rome in the oppression of Israel. B, they were considered unclean because they were dealing with money and Gentiles all day. And C, they were considered, uh, religiously, they were considered worse off than Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish folks. They were not allowed to go into the temple beyond the court of Gentiles, where all the Gentiles could go to worship. They were not, even though they were Jewish, they were not allowed beyond that. Because they were seen as as aiding and abetting and collaborating with the oppression of God's people by the Roman government. And they were deemed notoriously dishonest, because let's say you owe them a certain amount of money, they could add a surcharge to that. And there was nothing you could do about it. You still had to pay it. So they were corrupt. They were greedy. They were dishonest. So as Jesus is kind of at the, at the uh, playground, he's picking his team, right? He's got a whole crew of disciples. It's a surprise when the tax collector gets the call as one of the official 12. But even more surprising is, is the invitation to a zealot. Now, a zealot... A little bit of background. Rome occupied Israel in the first century, as you know. And and one of the primary questions the Jews were wrestling with is, how do we deal with Rome? How is it that pagan people are oppressing God's people, even though we're back in the promised land? And there were all sorts of guesses about how you should deal with this. One group said, listen, we need to increase the zeal for God's law. Another group said, listen, if you can't beat them, join them. Another group said, let's separate ourselves and focus on ritual purity. And then there was still another group that said, it is an offense that there is some pagan king ruling Israel. We should take that pagan king out by any means necessary. These were called zealots by Josephus, the fourth sect or philosophy of Judaism. And the idea was... That there was no God but God, no king but God, and the taxes and tribute levied by Rome, if you paid them, it was treasonous against God. So, there was a subset of zealots that were known as dagger men, and these people carried short swords, and they were ready at a moment's notice to engage in violent revolt against the Romans, or sometimes they would assassinate Jews that were helping the Romans. So do you get a picture that the two least likely people of that day to hang out together would be a tax collector and a zealot? You see that? And so here's Jesus. He's got a whole crew of disciples and he's going to pick some fishermen who are, who are kind of, you know, they're just trying to survive and then we're going to name a tax collector and then we're going to name a zealot. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Or not at all is this fourth of july weekend kind of like you're still kind of recovering um the other thing that's really remarkable about this list is how unremarkable these guys are now if if you're a student of like first century judaism there's there's no priest in this list there's no sadducee no pharisee 
There's no Levite. There is nobody from the religious establishment at all in this list. In fact, go if you would to Acts chapter 4. What's, what's really interesting is <laughs> that these guys aren't interesting. What's remarkable is these guys aren't remarkable at all. I mean, they weren't, they weren't especially credentialed. I mean, none of them were coming from great rabbinic schools of the day, swapping one rabbi for another. There was nothing about these guys. Your eyes daze over the minute, the gaze over the minute I'm reading that list, right? Because they're just like, we've turned them into saints, yes. But you've got to understand, if you would have been sitting there around Jesus and you'd be going, okay, so that's the 12? Not, nothing great, nothing mighty, no one rich. No one particularly religious? I mean, are these the first 12 that said yes? I mean, what What in the world? So you you get to Acts chapter 4, and and these guys are completely different, right? Jesus rises from the dead. They're filled with the Spirit. These guys are turning the world upside down. But it's still remarkable how unremarkable these guys are. So Peter and John are standing before the highest Jewish court, the Sanhedrin defending themselves for a miracle that they had done. And Peter gives this just beautiful sort of defense. And then verse 13. When the Sanhedrin saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were what? Ordinary, unschooled men. They were astonished. Now, that's great news, isn't it? Because guess what? You're not all that awesome. And, and Jesus can do amazing things with you. I mean, I mean, that's what's so great about the story. See, we've so canonized these guys. We, we, we kind of we miss their foibles and their imperfections and the way they argue and the way they're prideful and the way they're selfish. And even when they're with Jesus. And what's so beautiful is that he's only looking for the humility of a yes. That's all he's looking for. He's not looking for you to have some impressive list of credentials. He's not looking for you to have some sort of pedigree. He's just looking for people willing to say yes and say yes in spite of opposition or persecution or whatever it is that may come. When somebody in Cal State Fullerton says, hey God, I'll go anywhere. God will take you up on that. Right? I mean, that's how he works. You don't have to be remarkable because he's remarkable enough for all of us. He's just looking for people to say yes to him. And not just yes like, because there were lots of spectators to the ministry of Jesus. Would you agree? There are always more spectators than followers. There are always people hanging around Jesus who just want to benefit from Jesus but have no interest in following him. That's true today too. But what he's looking for, water, what he's looking for, He's looking for people who will follow. And so these guys, the only remarkable thing about them is their unremarkability and their willingness to say yes. But it's a costly yes. We know from church history, right? One betrays Jesus, and then 10 of the other 11 we think were martyred. Not like in good ways. The last one was in exile. So there's a sense in which if you would have been with Jesus that day, You wouldn't have been dazzled by these guys, which is great news for us when you agree. Because Paul will have to remind his church, he planted a church in Corinth, he has to remind his church, hey church, remember what you were when you were called by Jesus? Not many of you were rich, not many of you were influential, not many of you had noble birth. God delights in using the lowly things to shame the things that think they're all that. 
So welcome to the club. If you're kind of average, if you're kind of ordinary. Now, I know some of you are raised in the narcissistic self-esteem generation and you get ribbons and trophies for every little thing you do. (laughs) So let me just be, you're not special, all right? You're not awesome. God's not lucky to have me. He's not lucky to have you. We're lucky to have him. And what he can do with somebody humble enough just to say yes regardless, that's remarkable. And that's why we know these guys at all. Because of what God does in the midst of them. So, you read a list and you're going, well, this is kind of, okay. It's like a genealogy, just a little shorter. But what's happening here is pretty amazing. On the one hand, he's gathering around himself a crew of people that would never voluntarily associate with each other in that day. The only thing this crew has in common is their faith and trust in him. And the second thing is there was no particular like awesomeness about this list, which means there's room for all of us. Now, why does he choose 12 of them? Because I imagine, I mean, you, you, you had more than 12 there. I, I would have I wanted as many as possible. And, and why not 10? Why, not, why don't we have the four? You know, or, or the seven? No, we have the 12. So let's talk about why 12. Flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I've missed Genesis. We've been in Leviticus so much. Genesis feels like just a warm pillow. So, we go back to the beginning of the story. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, it is good. God creates human beings, they are very good. He gives them work to do to creatively steward and manage and take creation and do something with it. They rebel, we rebel. Sin and death enter the world. And then Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, you have the outward rippling of sin and death and evil, culminating in a flood and in a tower built out of pride. And then God moves to redeem what he has made. And it's interesting how he does it. It just starts, the Lord said to Abram, now we just met Abram in chapter 11 in a genealogy. We know nothing about this God, but the Lord says to Abram, Go from your own country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And then comes a promise that the rest of the Bible is the outworking of that promise. This is the story. You want to know what the whole Bible is about? It's this right here. I, God, will make you, Abram, into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed. How? Through you. So the blessings given to Abram weren't just for him. They were for the nations, right? The entire Bible is the outworking of this promise. So, Abram, though, and Sarah, they're childless. So there's a big story about how they finally have a child named Isaac. Isaac marries a woman. They are childless too. Flip over to Genesis 25. So Isaac prays for children. Genesis 25. Verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies, so she's having twins, jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. These two children are going to found two nations. 
Two peoples from you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger, which is not what was customary. Customary was the younger serve the older, but in God's providence, he's going to flip it around, which is what he does to everything, right? So, Abram has a son, the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac now is going to have two children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau represent two nations that you read about the rest of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. But notice this, chapter 32, verse 22. Jacob, Jacob's really an interesting guy. If, if you've ever read the Old Testament, Jacob isn't what you'd naturally think of, chapter 32, if you're going to be the father of a great nation. Jacob's a bit of a cheater, a bit of a manipulator. Um, Jacob, yeah, I mean, if you don't know the stories, Jacob, Jacob cheats his brother out of some stuff. I mean, it's, it's crazy the kinds of people God uses, which is good news for all of us. So one night, Jacob is wrestling with somebody. And it's either an angel or it's God himself, but it's some sort of male figure he's wrestling with. And at the end of the night, it says this, verse 27, Genesis 32, the man asked Jacob, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So, Abraham has son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel. And what's so interesting is that Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. Flip over to chapter 49. Now, some of you know this, of course, but I'm rehearsing it as if we hadn't figured it out ahead of time. Genesis 49. So, Jacob has 12 sons. Sons. Now, the custom of the day, and a good custom even today, is to bless your children, particularly if you're near death. And so Jacob called his 12 sons. And notice how the text describes this. He, he calls them to bless them. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. And then he blesses each Son, by prophesying over them what will happen to them in the future. And then notice verse 28. All these, so the list of the 12 sons, all of these are the what? 12 tribes of Israel and what Jacob their father said. So this is the Old Testament story. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. How does he do it? Abram, Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Esau becomes his own nation. Jacob gets renamed Israel. Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Every Jewish man, woman, and child in the first century when Jesus is speaking is the descendant of one of those 12 tribes. So when Jesus selects precisely 12 apostles, what do you think he's doing there? I mean, not 11, Twelve, exactly. And in fact, twelve becomes so important to their identity that when Judas betrays Jesus and dies, one of the first things you read about in the book of Acts is they select another one because they have to have twelve. Why does twelve matter so much? Well, Jesus is drawing a connection between what Yahweh did in the Old Testament in selecting twelve tribes and what Jesus is now doing and selecting a new 12. Do you see? Jesus is claiming for himself something that's kind of a big deal. Anytime you would hear the number 12 in Judaism, 
what would you think of automatically? Twelve tribes of Israel. So what's Jesus doing? From within the large mass of Israel, Jesus is calling forth a renewed Israel. And this Israel is not built around ethnic identity or obedience to Torah. It's built around discipleship and followership to Jesus of Nazareth. This would have been a massively big statement. He chose 12. Of course he did. And we've made this point before. Jesus didn't come to replace Israel. He came to call Israel back to her original vocation to be a light to the nations, to be salt to the world, to be the place where the one true God was known, loved, worshipped, and could be known from any part of the globe. The problem had been Israel herself became part of the darkness through her failure and infidelity and worship. And so Jesus of Nazareth shows up as Israel in person. Everything that Israel was to be, Jesus now is, and gathers around himself a crew of unremarkable, unschooled people, and he gives them the same vocation Israel had in the Old Testament. You are salt. You are light. You go make disciples throughout all the nations. Are you with me on this point so far? That means every single follower of Jesus in this room in Paul's terms, has been grafted into Israel, so we now too are considered the offspring of Abraham. You are the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 12, and you have been given the exact same mission that Israel was given in the Old Testament. You are to leaven the nations with the knowledge of the one true God. That's why you're here. So Paul will use the image of grafting branches into an already established tree to describe who you are and what you do now. And so what Jesus does is he renews Israel, but he does it around himself. Now you're thinking, you seem pretty passionate about this, and I don't care. (laughs) Understood. But here's, there are lots of reasons why this matters. Most importantly, because you are now on a mission in the same way Israel was on a mission. But there's another reason this matters. This new, renewed Israel is not going to be consisting of a tribe or a nation or a people delineated by ethnic identity. This new movement of Jesus is going to consist of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And one of the most beautiful and least talked about aspects of the movement of Jesus is the fact that what God wants to do is to take people who would have no business ever hanging out together, sit them next to each other at peace because of the work he's done in their lives. So so one of the biggest issues in the book of Acts and in the early church was how do you take Gentiles who are non-Jewish people and sit them next to Jews? Because they weren't naturally friends. Later rabbinic writings express the following attitudes towards non-Jewish people. They were called dogs. Some late rabbis said that if you helped a Gentile woman in childbirth, it was a sin because you were helping bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish girl married a Gentile guy, they would, the, gent, the Jewish family would hold a funeral for her because she was dead to them. And, and the Gentiles were no less friendly. I mean, there were many times when the Jewish nation would seek to be exterminated by the Gentiles. So go to Ephesians chapter 2. One of the biggest things 
that began to happen in the Jesus movement is you have all of these people flooding in who would never hang out together before. Ephesians chapter 2. In the ancient world, and I know this will shock you because we don't do it now. In the ancient world, people were classified and divided all over the place. So you have, you have Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. Then you would have Roman citizen or non-Roman citizen. And then you would have slave owners, and you would have servants and slaves, masters and freemen. Then in the house, you would have male and female, and women were property. Women uh, weren't terribly highly regarded until late into the Roman Empire. Uh, women were, the man held the power of life and death over the household. So you'd have male and female, slave or free, right? You'd have Jew and Gentile. You'd have father, children. And so you had all, and then in each of those like social categories, you would have stratifications even further. So one of the most revolutionary things that Jesus began to do was collect around himself people who would not normally associate with each other, but would do so on the basis of their common faith in him. So one of the biggest ones Paul mentions in is Ephesians chapter 2. He's writing to a church that's mixed, both Jewish and Gentile. And he says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. That's you. (laughs) Jesse, that's you. Gentile. Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Remember, circumcision was a defining marker of Jewish identity. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, uh, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one, what? New humanity out of the two groups, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You take one of the most um, impressed, cemented divisions in the ancient world, Jew and Gentile, And Paul simply says, that division has been eradicated in the work of Jesus, who's not only reconciled each of them individually to Jesus, but have reconciled them to each other. So you now, in the church, have places where Jews and Gentiles were associating with each other. Well, that never happened. That never happened. And and part of what Paul's saying here is that the good news of Jesus isn't just that you're reconciled to God, but it's now those who... You were enemies with. Now those you can be at peace with. That, that people that would no longer be sitting together and associating with each other can now do so in peace. If, in fact, flip over to chapter 6. At, at, towards the end of this letter, Paul starts addressing particular people in this church. And, and notice, verse 5, chapter 6. Who does he address in verse 5? Slaves. So, in the church... You have slaves. Who does he address in verse 9? Masters. Now, we read that and we think, oh, okay, that's cute, that's nice. Here's baby Jesus, you know, come to set us free. There, 
This was revolutionary. All right? To have masters and slaves voluntarily sitting next to each other. That, there was no place in the ancient world where that would happen. No place. No place. The work of Jesus. See, what I'm trying to, to communicate is that how does Jesus save the world? Well, there are lots of ways. He's center of it all. But he pulls together a community and gives it a mission. And part of its mission is its communal life together. Namely, that people who would be formally antagonistic toward each other would set aside their differences and separate identities in virtue of their shared faith in this Jesus. That the way the new humanity is not when people who are just like each other hang out with each other. Paul will even, or Jesus will even say, tax collectors do that. If you love people who love you, what's that? Anybody can do that. You love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. One of the central aspects of the mission of Jesus is a group of people that could be divided but aren't in virtue of his work. So here you have slaves, masters, male, female, Jews, Gentiles, all sitting together without hostility. Go, if you would, to the book of Galatians. Flip back one book. This is Paul's most famous statement of what Jesus has done. I mean, somebody's preaching somewhere. If Albert Tate were here, you'd be standing up and clapping for him. I'm up here sweating and it doesn't matter. I'm going to wear shorts next week. I'm just telling you. And I don't care if I get in trouble. I'm wearing them. That's right. You need, listen. With legs like these. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, you've heard this verse, but please let it wash over you. As revolutionary as it would have been the first time you would have heard it in the first century. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, the promise of Genesis 12 and heirs according to that promise. In other words, every single identity that you carry into this place is rendered obsolete and irrelevant in virtue of the identity you have in Jesus. Now, how have we done in protecting the oneness of our faith in Christ in our witness to the world. Have we done? I'd say horrible. I like the thumbs down lady back there. Yes, thumbs down, definitely. How, even in church, what are all the ways that we divide ourselves? Life stage? Yeah, okay, so let's, go, let's start with life stage and we'll get to class. So life stage, you, so you're a student and then you're a college student and then you're a young adult and then there's a single and then there's young marrieds and then there's older marrieds and then there's empty nesters and then there's parents of teens and then there's right I mean so you've taken the body of Jesus who needs actually every other part right because the last the worst thing that younger parents need is more younger parents I mean it's good to feel like you're not abnormal 
you know, and how crazy it is, but young parents should also be around older parents. Would you agree? And it's really good for older parents to be around younger parents. And it's really good for single people to be around families. And it's really great for families to be around single people. I mean, uh, so, so what we've done is we've carved up all the groups that need each other and just segmented them all according to their life stage, right? That's not new humanity. Anybody can do that. All right, what else? You said class, so we've got upper class, middle class, lower class. What's interesting is we all feel middle class. I read, I, and again, I, I couldn't verify it, but I'd read one author who quoted a study <laughs> that said, when asked, 98% of folks felt they were middle class, which means even the upper class people feel like they're middle class. Now, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. How many of us feel rich? See, part of the demonic system of American culture is that the rich don't feel rich. We always want more. So, we can segment ourselves according to income level. Yes, what else? Yes, ethnic. Yep. That's it. That's right, that's right, that's right. So, so we can separate ourselves according to ethnicity. Absolutely. But the new humanity isn't a bunch of people like, who are like each other. The new humanity is when every tongue, every tribe, every nation does the hard work to be together. That's really good. What else? Denominations. Yeah, we're one of 30,000. That's awesome. Now, some of them we've divided for really good reasons. Like there's some stuff happening in the Presbyterian Church. I mean, there's things happening. There's sometimes you've got to do it. But I would say most of those 30,000 probably, if let me just put it this way. If you, can, if you can fight about something, we'll find a way. <laughs> right? What else? Abilities? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even, so, so sometimes church can be like the lunchroom in junior high. You got your cliques, right? You got your, you got, right, different kinds of folks. Absolutely. Good. What else? Oh, come on. We're not even warmed up yet. The politics. Come on. You got your red staters. Your, yes, and education. What? Addictions. Oh, yeah. So we've got the addicted and then everybody else who just pretends. Right? <laughs> exactly. Good. What else? What? Sports? No, sports unites us as long as you're an Ohio State fan. Right. The one, listen, I want to be really clear. The one group of people Jesus did not die for are from Michigan. All right? I just, no, no. I just... It says it in here, all right? Just kidding. Right, so we've got life stage, we've got race, I mean, you've got gender, you've got uh, politics, you've got education levels, we've got PhD and GED. I mean, you've got, you've got everything under the sun. Worship style preference, you've got, I mean, just the whole... The church has excelled at introducing the divisions that Jesus eradicated. Would you agree? So brothers and sisters, 
The calling of the twelve is so very instructive for our mission, no question about it, but also for the fact that the greatest testimony to the gospel of Jesus is a group of people who are not like each other, sitting with each other, doing the hard work of not just tolerance, but love of each other. And see, the purpose of biblical community isn't just to meet your needs. All right? That's what we think it is. It's just to meet my needs. And it does do that. Hallelujah. But biblical community is also an expression of the gospel and the good news of Jesus to a watching world. So when we just are around people who are just like us, that doesn't show them anything they don't already know. What's beautiful is when a group of people decide to get serious about the fact that every other identity you could possibly have is rendered irrelevant and obsolete in this place. That's when the good stuff really begins to happen. So I don't know about you. This causes me to have to do a bit of repentance. The reason we fight racism and sexism and ageism, the reason we fight prejudice, isn't just because we're good, socially, politically correct folks. It's because they harm our witness. And they do not reflect the beauty of the Creator. And so I want you just to close your eyes for a moment, if you would. What are the ways in which you and I categorize, label, divide? And so, Father, we pray that you would call us to repentance this morning. We pray, Father God, those places in our hearts where labels, judgments, prejudices, where those things exist, even in the body, we pray that you'd wage war against them. And we pray, God, you would pour out your spirit on this community. Not for its own sake, but for the sake of the nations that are watching. For the sake of our neighbors in a world that is increasingly tribal and fractured and fragmented. Lord, we desire to see tattooed and pierced 20-somethings sitting next to 90-year-olds who've been married 60 years. We desire to see the races put away their ethnic identities. We desire to see you grow larger in this place and we grow smaller. So we pray that you'd have mercy on us, Father, that we might follow you and in so doing, put you on display in ways that are totally surprising and unexpected. So come, Holy Spirit, come.